Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, where I'd like to take as our scripture reading and the basis for our meditation on this Thanksgiving morning, verses 15 to 21. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21. Hear now the word of God. Paul says, Look therefore carefully how ye walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunken with wine, wherein is riot, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, subjecting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. And thus far the reading of God's Word. It feels a little unusual to be getting up on a Thursday morning and getting ready for church and coming down and having a worship service in the middle of the week. We're not accustomed to doing that. And undoubtedly, you've reflected on why we would do such a strange thing, and you know the answer to that. It's a simple and child's question. We're here on this Thursday to worship because it's Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving Day is set apart from the rest of the year as a day in which we remember our obligation and our privilege to give thanks to God. It's not a normal day of worship. It's not one of the ordained uh, days of worship as we find in the Scriptures. Uh, one of my children asked this morning, are we having Sunday school today? And the answer was, well, is it Sunday? No, it's not Sunday, and we're not having Sunday school. Well, then, why are we going to church? This is a church service that's different from others. Not simply because it's a day of the week that we're not accustomed to gathering on, but because it's a particular kind of service. You know, on any particular Lord's Day, you could have a number of themes brought before you, your attention, the creation of God the preservation of God of his creation, his direction of history, God's sovereign care, God's holy character, God's love for his people, the Son of God and his life, or the worship of God in the church, the evangelistic message of the church, the missionary task of the church, the life of the Christian, the second coming of Christ. Any number of these things could be brought up today but on any Lord's Day, but on this particular day it wouldn't be appropriate to reflect on just any theme. On this particular day there's but one theme that we have in mind, and that's Thanksgiving. That's interesting. We don't have a holiday, do we, to celebrate the second coming of the Lord. We do have a holiday to celebrate his birth, that's true, Christmas, and we do have a holiday that celebrates his resurrection, although I think most of you realize that every Lord's Day we meet on Sunday just because we're celebrating his resurrection. But every other major theological theme of the Bible could have its own particular day. Why is it that we have Thanksgiving and not the others? What is so special about Thanksgiving? Well, Historically speaking, the reason we're here to have a worship service on Thanksgiving Day and not for the other theological themes of the Bible is because in this particular country, um, the severe winter that was experienced by our Pilgrim Fathers and which they survived by the good providence of God 
is one that led them to remember not just for that particular occasion, but for all occasions, that their lives are dependent upon God. And so it's in this country in particular that we have a Thanksgiving Day. It's not a universal holiday of the church. It's a particularly American experience. However, I think it's a particularly appropriate experience for all Christians. If we don't have a Thanksgiving Day in other Christian churches around the world, it would not be inappropriate as something that makes Thanksgiving of all of the Christian virtues stand apart, it seems to me. And I'd like to show that to you this morning by looking at what Paul has to say in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. As we turn to Ephesians 5, thinking about Thanksgiving and remembering the holiday season that's upon us, we might want to reflect a little bit further about the holiday spirit that's here. Uh, it didn't begin just today or as it used to be tomorrow with the stores getting ready for Christmas. The holiday spirit's been with us now for about a month if uh, my eyes are serving me well. I've been seeing Christmas trees go up in department stores and the lots being prepared for the selling of trees and uh, other places getting ready their decorations and wreaths and other sorts of things, all so that we might be in the Christmas spirit or more broadly the holiday spirit. We do come in this country because of the timing of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's to what's called the holiday season. The holiday season begins with Thanksgiving. Now that happens to be, I think, probably an accident of the calendar. But if you stop and think about it, it may very well be psychologically sound, too, that the Thanksgiving holiday should begin the holiday season. And during this season, uh, psychologists tell us those who have to deal with people that have severe personal, marital, family problems, whatever it may be, that this is a very difficult time of year. Uh, that's something about which you should reflect and perhaps give even greater thanks to God for today, that you can look forward to the holiday season in a way that others cannot, because others re recognize that what the holiday season brings to them is just a greater awareness of their loneliness, a greater awareness of how their lives have not given what they had hoped, a greater awareness of how dreams have been smashed, how relationships are now crumbling, and how their lives are miserable. And so there's a higher incidence of suicide or attempted suicide during this time. The holiday season is not universally a happy experience. If it is for you, if you still have that childlike simplicity that looks forward to Christmas, the thing that thinks of Thanksgiving as a nice time to get away from school and to enjoy life, if you still have that open and happy feeling about the season of the year in which we're now entering, then praise God, does not all men have that? But those who um, have the most severe of problems and those who have less severe problems nevertheless enter into the season looking for the spirit of the season. And although it's often made a joke and perhaps a laughing matter among those who are in the world, the spirit of this season is often alcoholic spirits. I want to suggest to you that though there is nothing wrong with alcoholic spirits in themselves, you know very well that our church takes no stand against the drinking of alcoholic beverages, that nevertheless it is a sad testimony to the emptiness of many lives that in order to rise above the monotony of life, to rise above the cares of this world, in order to gain the kind of uh, hilarity or enthusiasm or joy which is supposed to be associated with the holidays, so many people have to find that in a bottle. Paul tells us in Ephesians the fifth chapter that we are not to be drunk with wine wherein is riot, but rather to be filled 
with the Spirit. Obviously, Paul has in mind another holiday spirit than that which is associated with wine and alcohol. He's referring to the Holy Spirit of God as the spirit, if you will, of the holidays. And that's what I refer to in, my, uh, in the title of this morning's meditation, the holiday spirit. In the book of Ephesians, Paul expounds upon certain fundamental theological themes for three chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with predestination, the new life, and reconciliation of Jew and Gentile within the church. And then at chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you notice the very first word of chapter 4, good Pauline style, therefore, Paul says. He gives his theological exposition, he says, therefore, on that basis, there's a certain kind of life that's required of you if you belong to God. Chapter 4 begins, then, an exhortation of Paul's readers concerning their lives and their behavior as believers in Jesus Christ. Paul calls them, first of all, to unity in the church, the first 16 verses of chapter 4. He calls them to a new and distinctive lifestyle, the remainder of chapter 4. He calls them to integrity, to tenderheartedness, and at the beginning of chapter 5, to purity as well. Now, throughout all of these exhortations about the Christian life, there's a particular contrast that I want to draw to your attention before I make my application this morning. Throughout these moral exhortations, Paul emphasizes that a change has taken place in those who are believers. He emphasizes the difference between the believing world or faction of mankind and the unbelieving world. Paul stresses that contrast between the former life of sinful unbelief and the new life of faith throughout chapters 4 and 5. I want to give you just a few illustrations of that. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. Paul says you are different from the world. You've been called out and given a vocation. Vocation coming from the Latin for to call. God has called you. God has given you a new lifestyle. And he says walk worthy of that new lifestyle. Look at chapter 4 verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. He goes on to describe the life of the Gentiles. Here, of course, Paul is thinking of Gentiles in the spiritual sense, not in the national or in the racial sense. Gentiles, those who are alien from the people of God, those who are unbelievers. And he says, I tell you, you are not to walk as they do. You are to be different from the world. The believer is not to be like... The unbeliever, when it comes to his attitudes and his behavior and the things that he says, you are to be different from that. Verse 22, chapter 4, says that you put away as concerning your former manner of life, the old man that wax corrupt after the lust of deceit. Paul says, put away that old lifestyle. Put away your heathen past. Put away your unregenerate past. You're a different person now, now that you're in Christ. You are to be different from the world. In verse 24, he says, Put on the new man that after God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Put the old man aside and make sure you're manifesting the new man in Christ. And so, repeatedly in these exhortations, then, Paul is saying, Act as a Christian, not as the world. Act as a Christian, not as the world. Be a believer, not an unbeliever. Demonstrate that you are not in the flesh, but rather in the Spirit. Verse 28, Paul says, Let him who stole steal no more. One illustration of a more general 
uh, policy in Scripture that says we are to put our past sins behind us and we're to take on a new manner of life. It's just the opposite of that sinful tendency that was once seen in us. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as becometh saints. Paul could have said, Don't engage in adultery. Don't engage in covetousness. Don't let it be named among you. But he adds these words, as become saints, as those who are set apart from the world, those who are holy in the eyes of God. That's why these things shouldn't be named among you. It's wrong for all men to engage in adultery, wrong for all men to engage in covetousness, but all the more for the saints, let it not be named among them. And in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5, be ye not therefore partakers with them, for ye were once darkness, but are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I mean, as the message coming through, Paul is repeatedly contrasting the world with the church. Those who are still in their sins with the saints. Those who are unbelievers with believers. Repeatedly he's saying, be distinctive. Stand out from the world. Be different because you're a believer. And then we come to chapter 5, verse 15, and Paul brings all of this together and summarizes all of these contrasts by saying we should walk not as fools, but as the wise. Paul sets foolishness over against wisdom. The believer avoids foolishness, the foolishness of the unbelieving world, and walks in the wisdom of God, and he does it in three ways. Verse 15 says, he does it by carefully looking after the manner of his life. In verse 16, by making good use of his time, redeeming the time because these are evil days. And finally, in verse 17, by understanding the will of the Lord. Now, how are these things to take place, though? How is that radical difference between the believer and the unbeliever to be realized? How does it come about that you have light and darkness standing over against each other in the ways that Paul has been expounding upon? Verse 18 the answer to that. Paul once again describes in contrasting terms the difference between those who belong to the world and those who belong to Christ. And he says now it all depends on what fills them. The difference between those who are in the world and those who are in Christ is what is in them. Is it going to be the spirit of alcoholic beverage or the spirit of God? Paul says, be not drunken with wine wherein is riot, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now why am I bringing this up on Thanksgiving Day in particular? Well, Paul gives one imperative, be filled with the Spirit, and then he qualifies it in three ways. You need to look at the grammatical construction. I know that means we have to think a little more detailed than we might want to. We i rather just want to cruise along here mentally, but if you will look at the grammatical construction, something of real spiritual benefit will come, I trust. Paul says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Now, from 19 through 21, it's all one long English sentence made up of three participial modifiers. That is, he says, be filled with the Spirit, and then he says, and if you are, you're going to be speaking, verse 19, you're going to be giving thanks, verse 20, 
And then verse 21, subjecting. If you are filled with the Spirit, he says, you will be speaking one to another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Secondly, be filled with the Spirit, another modifier, giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, even the Father. And thirdly, if we are filled with the Spirit, a third modifier, subjecting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. And so, speaking, thanking, and subjecting ourselves if we are filled with the Spirit of God. The relevant point here is that Paul's call to give thanks, the second of those three participial modifiers that I've looked at, Paul's call upon us to give thanks is an exposition and development of the thought about being filled with the Spirit. To put it very briefly, a thankful attitude is the result of a Spirit-filled life. A thankful attitude is the result of a Spirit-filled life. Gratefulness follows upon the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Gratefulness is the response of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. So let's go back and look at that crucial verse 18 Pay a little more attention to it in detail now, because that's the key, apparently, to being able to do what Paul says when he says, giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Paul says, that giving thanks follows upon being filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunken with wine wherein is riot, but filled with the Spirit. The literature of man from the earliest days of human literature shows the proclivity of men who we would call unregenerate from a Christian standpoint, those who are not right with God, shows the proclivity of the natural man to rise above, to try and rise above his cares and to achieve joy through intoxicating beverages. That is to say, literature from the oldest period shows men have a tendency to get drunk. Scripture doesn't condemn the use of alcohol, as I've already said, in fact, contrary to what many fundamentalist churches teach, and I think thereby uh, misrepresent the faith and give the world the wrong impression of Christianity, contrary to that, the Bible says that alcohol is a good gift of God, and God has given it to man to make his heart merry. It's not only acceptable to, say, have a glass of wine or so on Thanksgiving Day because you're happy. It's the expected thing. God says that he blesses his people with overflowing vats of wine. That's the blessing of God. The Proverbs tells us that when we have a friend who's down of heart and who's depressed, we should give him some wine or strong spirits in order to lift him up. It doesn't say we should get him drunk. It doesn't say we should lead him to a lack of self-control. But the Bible says that wine and strong drink is the gift of God and has godly uses. After all, Paul could even tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Paul apparently thought Timothy as a young pastor was getting just a little too uptight about all these things he had to do as a pastor. And Paul said, you know, Timothy, have a little wine here. Settle your stomach down and you're going to be better off. Your health will improve for that reason. Throughout Scripture, then, we find that God's people in the Old and New Testaments have never had this attitude of abstinence. There are, of course, a few occasions of religious vows that include abstinence from alcoholic beverage, but that's the exception to the rule. The general principle of Scripture is that wine and strong spirits are good and can be properly used. But throughout the Bible, just as emphatically, and perhaps more often, mentioned is the fact that God forbids us to be drunk. 
It's one thing to have our heart made merry by the good gift of God, a glass of wine, but Scripture often condemns drunkenness, the loss of self-control that comes through drinking in excess. And so Paul forbids the believer here to be drunk with wine, and he adds this very realistic commentary to it. He says, wherein is excess? Uh, your translations may have different words. You may have riot, or you may have um, uh, another possibility would be where is, uh, uh, why doesn't it come to me, riotous living. The same word that is used in the story of the prodigal son who takes his money from his father and goes off to a far country and loses it. He wastes it in riotous living. That's the word Paul's thinking of here. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is riot or wherein is excess, where is a dissipation and the loss of self-control. Paul says that should never be true among us as believers. Drunkenness is absolutely inappropriate in the Christian life. It has no place here. And if it should happen to be for your particular weaknesses or personality that you cannot drink without controlling yourself, then the Bible would encourage you not to drink. The good gift of God is not to be put to a sinful end. Paul says, don't you be drunk with wine. But then he says, but rather, just the opposite. He says, be filled with something if you're not going to be filled with the holiday spirit of wine and beer and anything else, he says be filled with this spirit. The holiday spirit comes when the Holy Spirit of God fills us. Paul compliments his negative command to not be drunk with wine by adding that we should rather and positively be filled with the Spirit. And this is a very valuable lesson to be found just in that contrast, I think. God never aims to take away our joy. God never gives a command to take away our joy. God never gives a prohibition because he wants us to be kept from getting too happy. But rather, just the opposite, God shows us how to find genuine and lasting joy, not the fleeting comfort of drunkenness, but rather full-time, never-ending, constantly uplifting joy. He says, don't be drunk with wine, where is riotous living, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's fascinating. We have to stop for a moment and remember, there was one other time in Scripture where this idea of drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit, these two ideas are set next to each other, and that's in Acts, the second chapter. You remember the day of Pentecost when the believers there were filled with the Spirit the way in which they were lifted above depression and lifted above monotony, and the way in which they realized their joy and liberation was in the Spirit of God. But the world, the outsiders, couldn't understand that. And so they automatically attributed it to what? They were drunk early in the morning. And Peter says, oh no, this is not something that alcoholic beverage gives. This comes from God. This comes from the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to give in the history of redemption how Christ has ascended on high and has given the Spirit to his church. Paul, you see, is referring to that same kind of contrast. The world has to get high on booze, but we get high on the Spirit. Literally, what Paul says is, be filled in the Spirit. That could be translated because of the use of the Greek word en, very similar to the uh, English word in, it could mean be filled by the Spirit. Probably, however, it means to be filled with the Spirit with a special emphasis upon in the Spirit because in the Spirit is a phrase Paul uses throughout the book of Ephesians to refer to the Christian life. 
First of all, though, look at Romans 8, verse 9, if you want to understand what it means to be in the Spirit. To be in the Spirit is not something which comes and goes. And that's one of the mistakes that many people who um, claim to be Christians make, I think, when it comes to living their Christian lives. They want to be Spirit-filled, and they mean by that, I'll be Spirit-filled today, and if I lose it tomorrow, then I'll get it back on Tuesday, sort of thing. You're in the Spirit and out of the Spirit. But Paul doesn't use in the Spirit in that way. In Romans 8, verse 9, it should become clear to us how Paul thinks of being in the Spirit. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8 plays out the contrast between life in the flesh, that is to say, in the sinful nature of man, and life in the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says in Romans 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, cannot keep the law of God, will not find his favor. But by contrast, those who are in the Spirit fulfill the ordinance of the law. Those who are in the Spirit belong to the Son, Jesus Christ, and are made right with the Father. So what does it mean to be in the Spirit? It means to be taken out of the world, out of our unregenerate, fleshly, and natural character and made by the supernatural power of God a new person. To be in the Spirit means to belong to Jesus Christ, to have His Spirit so overwhelm and fill us that we now belong to Him. And we do not live by our own guidance. We do not live by our own lights and by our own power, but we rather live by the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It is, in a word, to be regenerated, to be born again, to have life from the dead. It is to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul here says, nevertheless, that we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, the expression in the Spirit stands in contrast to the world. Indeed, in the Spirit characterizes the whole life and experience of the Christian. Very briefly, our access to God, according to uh, Ephesians 2, verse 18, is in the Spirit. For through Him we have our access in one Spirit unto the Father. To be in the Spirit is to be the temple of God, chapter 2, verse 22, in whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. To be in the Spirit is to receive God's revelation, chapter 3, verse 5. Paul there says, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And in the Spirit is to have our prayers heard by God. Ephesians 6, verse 18, he says, With all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance. In the Spirit. Repeatedly, Paul uses that expression to characterize the Christian experience. To be in the Spirit is to be a Christian, to be born again, to live our life completely in the atmosphere and by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Another thing that I find interesting about Ephesians 5.18 is that Paul, when he commands us to be filled with the Spirit or to be filled in the Spirit, uses the present tense, meaning that it's a continuous sort of thing. He doesn't mean once, one experienced here or there or once and for all. He means in an ongoing way be filled with the Spirit. 
Paul's not talking about some kind of emotional, spiritual high that you might have in some worship service on a particular occasion. I remember that Sunday when I was in the Spirit. No, he's talking about the daily walk of the believer, which is constantly, continually, persistently, consistently, repeatedly, on and on and on in the Spirit. He says, and so don't be drunk with wine, but over and over again, repeatedly, consistently, walk in the Spirit of God. Be filled in the Spirit. And now if you are, he says, what's going to happen? is that you're going to be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. What should we conclude when we have a worship service that just seems kind of flat, that just seems to be emotionally low, when we come to church and say, well, nothing happened there. I mean, then there are other days, I think you all know this, I have the same experience, I'm just like you in this regard. We have days when it just seems like everybody's kind of up and the singing is really enthusiastic and there's a lot of fellowship and mutual exhortation. It seems like we're really in a worshipful spirit. What's the difference? Is it that on the way to church, you know, sometimes we get ourselves all pumped up and excited about church and other days we forget to do that? Is it that some days, you know, our blood sugar level is high enough that we can be happy and other days we're all kind of in a manic depressants because we haven't had something to eat? I mean, what do you look for, a naturalistic explanation, a psychological explanation? No, we should be looking for a spiritual explanation. The reason why we, don't have, we have days where it doesn't seem like we're speaking to one another and singing, with making melody in our hearts to the Lord, is because we're not living as though we're in the Spirit. Isn't it true that we sometimes come to worship services pretty much in the power of the flesh? Don't we come because it's our duty? Don't we come because it's expected of us? Don't we come because it's going to socially be embarrassing if we don't? I mean, I could give other reasons, but you get my point. We sometimes come to church not because we feel the fellowship of the saints and the need to come before the very holy presence of God and praise His name. We come out of some other kind of mechanical expectation and duty. We don't come in the Spirit. We come, frankly, in the flesh. Not to say that we are unbelievers when we come, but we come as though we were unbelievers. We don't come in the, in the believer's attitude. We come in the world's attitude. You know what that is. You've probably had unbelieving friends who you've brought to church, and they come in an attitude much different than yours. Well, when you imitate that attitude, you're not going to be uh, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Second thing that's going to happen if we are filled with the Spirit is that we're going to be giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now, I told you at the beginning of the meditation that it was appropriate that we have a special day of thanksgiving. It's appropriate, but it's also sad. And you know why it's sad? Because Thanksgiving is not to be a special event in the Christian's life. Thanksgiving is supposed to be an ongoing attitude. It's supposed to be the very, um, very spirit, of cheerful praise to God that we live in from day to day and minute to minute. And it isn't. And so just as a moment ago I had to ask you, with what spirit do you come to church? Sometimes it's mechanical. With what spirit do you come to praise God this morning? Are we here because it's Thanksgiving Day and it's just expected of us? That's just the Christian thing to do, to go to a worship service on Thanksgiving. If so, it's probably true, to whatever extent that we're here mechanically this morning, it's also true that we find it hard to do what Paul says, to give thanks always 
for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To give thanks always, that's tough enough. But then Paul says, to give thanks always for all things. For everything? You mean for the car trouble that I'm now having? You mean for the bill that I can't pay? Give thanks to God for the sickness that I can't shake? Or for the death of a loved one two weeks ago? Give thanks to God for the trouble we're having in our family? Thanks to God for the discipline we need to give to our children? Give thanks to God for the hardships of this life? Yes. You say, but I can't do that. You see, that's the flesh speaking. That's the fallen sinful nature, which is absolutely right. It's true. We cannot give thanks to God in our own strength. And in one sense, Thanksgiving should be a frustrating day for many people. Many people who try to pretend they're really grateful, happy, giving praise to God types of people when they aren't. And they can't do that. And they can't sustain that. They might be able to do it today. And maybe for a couple hours tomorrow. Some might be so good as to get through the weekend. But I'm going to tell you, by Christmas, with the frustrations of driving and shopping and all the rest, you're going to find out who really has a thankful spirit in them. And if our thankfulness and our sense of joy and liberation comes from having a few glasses of wine and saying, all right, well, I guess I'm grateful that uh, I have my health and others don't. I mean, that kind of attitude is just not going to sustain us. But being filled with the Spirit of God will make us thankful, always and in all things. And I know you're saying now, but Pastor, you're not talking about me. And should I start wondering about my salvation if I'm not that kind of person? What if I am a person who gets down in the mouth and depressed. What if I do get discouraged? What if I'm not thankful all the time? What if I actually get bitter from time to time? Well, I guess the first thing I need to say is, well, then you're very much like me. Because I get down in the mouth from time to time, and I get bitter and discouraged and pretty depressed. Does that mean that I don't belong to Jesus Christ? Well, it should worry me that that happens. And if I, and if I doesn't, I probably have a carnal or a fleshly sense of security in the Lord but you see, it should bother me so that I do what I need to do to correct that attitude. And when I keep asking God to change that attitude and to make me the man that he wants me to be, then that's an indication that that isn't really my persistent attitude. That isn't my general character. And I trust it's not yours either. When you have days when you don't feel thankful, what should you do? Stop and do what Paul says. Be filled in the Spirit. You say, but I already am in the Spirit. I'm a Christian. Right, well then start living like that. Start thinking about that. Reckon yourselves spiritual people. You know, half the problems of the Christian life, I'm estimating, but I would certainly think half the problems of the Christian life come from not thinking correctly about ourselves, about the world and our relationship to God or others. That is not conceiving of the situation as God does. And when I'm not a thankful person, it's almost always because I'm thinking as the world thinks about life about my car problems, or about, you know, frustrating relationships, or what it might be. I need to start thinking of myself as God's child. Someone who lives in the Spirit, and not by the power of the flesh. And when I reckon myself to be in the Spirit, then I start giving thanks to God. Because, you see, just to be in the Spirit is to be different from the world. Just to be in the Spirit is to have a heavenly inheritance, which the world doesn't have. Just to be in the Spirit is to know that I belong to a heavenly Father who cares for me as His child, and who never puts me through anything without my good in mind. You see, just beginning to think of ourselves as in the Spirit rather than in the flesh is a step in the right direction. 
And then secondly, not only must we reckon ourselves in the Spirit, we must let the Spirit do its work in our lives. Now that may sound a little heretical in a Calvinistic church. Let the Spirit do His work in our lives. After all, the Spirit's sovereign. The Spirit overwhelms people. Well, I want to tell you something. The Spirit has a lot of different things that it does. I mean, I'm not going to give you a full summary of the Spirit's work today, but I want to tell you that there are two classes of what the Spirit does. In one class, the Spirit does overwhelm human hearts in resistance. That, praise God, is like regeneration. We may fight and kick and scream to not become Christians, but if the Spirit has it in mind, He's going to overwhelm our hearts, and we are going to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot resist the Spirit in that way. But there is a ministry of Spirit among Christians that apparently is a resistible ministry of the Spirit. I'm going to give you two quick examples. One from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 30. There Paul says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. That sealing ministry is irresistible. If he seals us for salvation, we will be saved. That's what the seal is all about. And yet he says, don't grieve the Spirit that has sealed you. How, if everything the Spirit does in our lives is overwhelming, irresistible, so powerful that we can't stop it, then it would be impossible to grieve the Spirit. But Paul here says, don't grieve the Spirit. In, Thess in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which we can't turn to because of time this morning, Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. And for all I know, if Paul were here today, he could give us a few other verbs that might describe that. It is true that though I belong to God and I am sealed with the Spirit of God and I am in the Spirit and not in the flesh, that I can live a life that doesn't take advantage of that power. I can, if you will, be stubborn and rebellious. Not so stubborn and rebellious as to lose my salvation. Praise God but I can sure be miserable as a Christian. You see, when Christians who are in the Spirit have one kind of life for themselves set out by the Spirit, and we insist on going the opposite way or contrary to the grain, then we may not get out of the Spirit, we may not lose our salvation, but we make ourselves really miserable people. Because we're one kind of person trying to live a different kind of life. And that's what happens, basically, when a Christian tries to live like the world. When a Christian gets drunk, or when a Christian engages in fornication, or a life of uh, dishonesty in order to get ahead financially, or on and on and on. When Christians do that, they're unhappy people. They're frustrated people. They're people working contrary to their basic character. And they grieve the Spirit, and they quench the Spirit, and they don't give thanks to God. They're unthankful people. And you know that. Say, I see your smiles and your nodding heads. You know that that's your problem. You know it's my problem too, but it's all of our problems. We don't live like Christians. We don't live in the Spirit. And when we don't live in the Spirit, we become miserable gripers. And so I have a word of advice this morning about the holiday spirit. If you want to feel like this holiday season is going to be a happy one, one where you can sing and praise God, get through it with cheerfulness and a thankful spirit. If you want to begin today, this Thanksgiving Day, with that spirit, there are two things you need to make sure that are right in your life. One, make sure you belong to Jesus Christ. If you aren't a Christian, you don't have happiness ahead of you. You have a lot of bitterness and a lot of torment. That's not because God doesn't want it otherwise. It's because you're rebelling against the one who made you. You're rebelling against the kind of plan and, and uh, purpose that he has for man. So we have to make sure that we're not in the flesh 
If we are unbelievers, if we're natural men, if we're unregenerate, if we haven't been born again, we aren't going to have a heart that can praise God. And secondly, if we are born again, and we aren't living in the Spirit, but living contrary to the Spirit, still living as though we were Gentiles and in the flesh, living contrary to our better character and against the uh, guidance and power of the Holy Spirit, if we're grieving and quenching the Spirit, we aren't going to praise Him. We aren't going to be thankful today. And so let's start living according to the very Spirit that animates us. Let's start living according to that Spirit that is within us. The choice is today, you want a happy day? Either get drunk or be filled with the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, Paul says, you're going to be giving thanks to God always for all things. Let's pray that that's what's true of us. Lord, we do thank you this morning, not just for Thanksgiving Day and for the many things that we might think about now for which we should give you particular thanks, but we thank you more basically and fundamentally that you have cared for us, that you have brought us back from the dead, that you have given us new life in the Holy Spirit of God. How we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, has not only provided an atonement for sin, not only has laid down his life for the sake of saving men, but he's also sent his Spirit into their hearts to overwhelm them and to bring them to himself. How we thank you that you have done that in our lives that you have brought us to yourself, that you've given us new life from the dead in Christ, so that even as he has been raised from the dead, we too have been raised from spiritual death, and we now live by the power of his Spirit, belonging to him. Father, help us to do two things this morning. First of all, to reckon that these things are true, to think of ourselves in these terms, and to remember we belong to you and are filled by you that we are vessels, vessels not filled with intoxicating beverage, but vessels filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And then, Father, help us not to pretend by our life, by our attitudes, by our words, that we are different than this. Help us to live in terms of our true character as your people. Help us to live in the Spirit so that that filling might be experienced and enjoyed and have its proper fruit in our lives. Do bring forth all of the fruit of the Spirit for us, Father. Not that we might simply enjoy comfort and ease and might feel at home here, but more particularly that we might learn to praise you continually. Indeed, to praise you and to thank you and to show that we are grateful in all situations. We find that so difficult. We live so often by fleshly purposes and fleshly power, Father. We do pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would strengthen us this day to give you thanks, not only for the obvious things, but for those things which the world would think we're quite wrong to be thankful for. We want to thank you for adversity and for trial and for tough times too, knowing that you don't put your people through anything that doesn't have a purpose and a purpose that serves their good and your glory. Do give us this outlook and this confidence and give us the power to live by it because we can pray to you in the power of your Spirit, and through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.